Before we get started, first I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for sharing the podcast with others. If you keep sharing, then we'll keep making. Secondly, to make sure some of our new listeners understand what makes our show a bit different from the others, well, here's a clip from episode 19 of Amber on Podcast, where she covered millionaire interviews. And no, I did not pay Amber for these kind words. She reached out telling me she covered our podcast. And I think her assessment perfectly covers what we're going for with the show. So here's that quick two-minute clip from Amber, and then we'll get on with the show. I have a brand new podcast to cover with you today, and I'm super stoked about it. I love discovering new cool things. That's the best thing that can happen to me is when I discover something new, someone cool, something that's awesome that I can learn from and that I can in turn share with you guys. And I found that in a new podcast. It's fairly new. They've only had, they have less than 100 episodes. And when I say they, I have to leave it very vague because they actually don't even really reveal themselves as to who the host is, who the producers are. I'm not sure. I haven't figured it out yet. So maybe you guys can help me out. But the show is called Millionaire Interviews. And it is great. It's exactly how it sounds in that he's interviewing millionaires. And unlike a lot of the other interview podcasts that I listen to and the ones that I share with you guys, he's not overly hype. This isn't a big ego stroke. You know, nothing against the interview podcasts that I listen to, but stylistically, they're all the same. They all act really excited to see their guests. They already have their lists and their questions prepared. They're like overly prepared. They're super prepared. They're ready for anything. And they're just showering the person with compliments and they're taking them through every turn and they're, you know, waiting on their every breath. And it's just really, it's an engaged podcast, but you can tell that the person is already impressed by the guest before they even start the show. In this podcast, that's not at all the case. He's not acting as if he's already impressed with you just because you showed up for his podcast. And that might sound crass, but it actually makes it really, really real and really raw because as the interview progresses, the host starts to ask and engage in questions that are really things you would only think about asking maybe your sibling or your very, very closest friend. Things about salary, things about your lifestyle, things about different hurdles or just different questions that are a lot more to the point than a lot of the other interview podcasts that I listen to and that I've covered historically. So if you're interested in a really raw podcast, then I've got one for you here, Millionaire Interviews. When an owner of a business basically says, look, even one day a week, you can work from home. What you're signaling to your employees is, look, I trust you. We have friends and family that just kind of looked at us like, what are you thinking? And as a leader and anybody listening, if you haven't taken the time recently to kind of share with the people that work for you the heart of why you started the business or why you fell in love with the business, then that's on you as a leader. Okay, with that, you ready to get started? I'm ready. Let's do it. Hi, my name is Brian Miles. I am the CEO and co-founder of a company called Belay. We provide virtual solutions to busy leaders all over the country. And where are you located? We are based in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you from there? I am. For the last 20 years, I grew up in Missouri and Southern California. I went to college in Ohio, but I'm pretty much native to Atlanta at this point. Why don't you expand upon a little bit more about what your company does, if you don't mind? Belay, basically, if you're familiar with the climbing term, Belay, in essence, it helps a climber climb higher. 
a belayer is one that kind of helps them to mitigate risk and take on things so that they can scale up and risk up. And really, that's what we do as an organization. We provide four core services, virtual assistant, you know, somebody that maybe manages your email or your calendar or serves as some um, kind of air traffic control over project management or your inbox. A bookkeeper who also can do payroll for you as well. It's a different person, but it's a bookkeeper who can basically oversee your AR payroll, provide weapons grade reporting on a monthly basis and reconciliation. The third one is content writing. So if you're looking to develop a voice, but you want to outsource that type of service, we have content writers. And then finally is webmasters. And if you've ever been burnt once and your website's been down and you don't know who to call, we're the best service around because you get to know and you have personal connection with your own webmaster that oversees your website. So those are the four core services that we offer at Belay. Belay. I mean, are you a climber? Because I've never heard that actual term before. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I am a climber. I'm a mountain climber. I've climbed a few mountains out west and I like standing on top of mountains and I, I like kind of the leadership principles behind climbing. And I've actually had people belay me in very intense situations like on Mount Rainier in a snowstorm or from a feelings or emotional standpoint, when you hear belay, it's basically someone saying, I got you. I got your back. You can make this because the climbing command is to belay on which is in essence saying, do you have me? And they're saying, yep, go for it. So it's a climbing term for helping someone climb higher. In essence, your company outsourced virtual assistant to people who are, have their own companies. Are they usually like one person companies? Are there bigger companies? Who's your main clients? You know, when we first got started, we really kind of focused on churches and nonprofits. But seven years into our business, you know, where we are today, we serve over 25 different verticals, big companies, small companies, startups, small nonprofits, big nonprofits higher education, one that I never thought we'd actually be working with professors. It's really the way I say it is it's not a size of organization or a type of organization. It's really about the leader and how busy they are. And if they've hit the lid of their personal capacity. When you started actually this company, did you have a virtual assistant at first? I and did. Then yeah. For seven years before I started Belay with my wife, basically from 2003 to about 2010, I had my own virtual assistant. And so my assistant, her name is Tricia, and she lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I lived in Atlanta. And she helped me manage a sales team of 10 guys for a company I used to work for. And she'd help me with, you know, everything business related. But then, you know, she'd help me schedule an appointment for my haircut or help me with my personal vacation. She's just kind of an all around helper and awesome at what she did. As my wife and I decided in 2010, we were going to launch this business. We just knew that there were other busy leaders out there that needed Atricia. That's in essence what we call a virtual assistant. We also, you know, the kind of a famous book now, The 4-Hour Workweek, it had launched in 2008 or 2009, I can't recall. And it really kind of put the virtual assistant industry on the map, but it was all pointing to things that are overseas. And we decided that at that time in our economy in the US, in the, kind of on the heels of the Great Recession, we decided we would just hire college-educated, stay-at-home moms with past business or professional experience to be our virtual assistants and bookkeepers to work with our clients here in the United States. So we offered a U.S.-based solution, and it surprised us how well it took off. When you were working with that other company, were you a part owner? Can you tell us about like how you actually got to find Trisha and how that worked out? Yeah, I was not an owner. I started in that company. It was a church construction company. They built and renovated churches all over the U.S. It was a 40-year-old company, second-generation owned. I was basically a sales guy for them at the Southeast Market of the United States. And I got promoted over time to join their leadership team. And for me, I had worked with an assistant that was kind of, I inherited. And then when she left, I hired Trisha. And Trisha worked with me for the pretty much the duration of the time I was there. 
when we decided to leave in 2010 and fund our own company, my wife and I, she left a really nice job too, working for a Fortune 10 company called McKesson. I went to Trisha and I said, listen, I'd love for you to work with us one day, but right now all I can afford you is for five hours a week. <laughs> the truth was that starting a business, I needed her like 40 hours a week. Right, right. Yeah. But you can only, pay. only afford five. <laughs> yeah. So she goes, no problem, boss. I'll work with you. And so she kind of moonlighted with me for about a year until I could afford to bring her on as really our first employee besides my wife and I in our business. And today I'm really proud to say that she's the COO of our company and does a magnificent job. I practice what I preach. Today, I still have a virtual assistant. Her name is Paige. She lives about 45 minutes from me here in Metro Atlanta. I see her probably 12 times a year, but for the most part, we work day to day from a remote or virtual capacity. And were you paying your assistant at first by yourself or was your company actually paying for it? You mean my former company? Yeah. They covered that cost because she was my assistant there when I worked there for that company. Yeah. But I know some people, for instance, like if you're making a high enough income that you can afford to pay for your own. Oh, yeah. Even if they won't, even yeah. if the company won't, because I think a lot of people just trying to think of it. I mean, if you're getting paid enough, you can easily start outsourcing it by yourself, even if you've asked your company multiple times to do it yeah. and they won't. So I want to say that don't leave that from holding you back if you're listening and have that nine to five and still need help. Boy, that's the truth. And we have that with our certain clients in our organization. They're very busy executives, but for whatever reason, their company policy is they won't pay for that. They just pay for it out of their own pocket because they see the benefit of it. That's a true example of a snapshot of a client's inside our company. Well, let's talk about the transition. Uh, I guess your wife, you're saying, left a really nice paying job as well? Yeah. So we had nice salaries, stable, what was perceived at the time, stable companies working for. And, and again, this was 2010. Kind of through the whole year, we did a lot of due diligence and planning. And we had friends and family that just kind of looked at us like, what are you thinking? And we had two young kids. They were two and five at the time. We kind of got to a place where we knew that this was the right next step for us as a couple and for our hopes. And we really wanted to take a risk at something because if it didn't work out, we could likely find jobs again. And so we just felt like it was the right time for us. So we actually, we used all the money from our 401ks as our startup capital. And how much money was that? Just so 160000 Okay. We used that as basically our startup capital for about 14 months until we got to a place where we broke even in our business. And I remember that day... Because I remember getting kind of the financials and going, I, I knew we were close. But when I saw that we actually broke even, I was like, this is crazy. I'm so thankful. <laughs> you know, the bleeding stops here. So, uh, And then we just continued to grow from there. And we've been very fortunate with the growth of our of our business over the last almost six, well, over six years now. Yeah, seven to eight, almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're in our eighth year of business now. Let's talk about this 14 months, because if you don't mind, I'm going to just take it step by step. If someone was to grow their business, because that hurts right there, just listening to that, right? That you have to mm -hmm. wait that long to break even. How do you keep yourself motivated? And let's just talk about the first few months getting started. Well, I remember even like for the first 18 months, I sold every deal that came through the door. I was the company sales guy. So kind of the proverbial, I would go hunt and my wife would clean and execute on our projects. And she was a project management professional. She was PNP certified. So she had done that in a very large organization. She knew how to manage complexity. And a lot of our clients, they have complex lives. And so we just could onboard them and manage them very well as they kind of got up to speed working with their virtual assistant or their bookkeeper. But for the first 18 months, I sold every deal. And there would be times where I'd be working late at night after I put the kids to bed, just grinding out proposals or contracts. And, and I remember one time in particular, sending out a contract and thinking if this person signs this contract, this that comes back after I have to pay our hard cost, this covers our cell phone bill. So I looked at things very kind of practical, like, you know, the money that comes in from this covers an aspect of our business. And it was just a time where it was, it was exhilarating. It was incredibly hard. It was sleepless. 
it was all the things that you'd expect in an early struggle of startup. I think some people don't know what to expect. Hopefully some of our listeners have actually started their own business or further along, but what happened that you didn't expect? And again, it's just like grinding those hours. It seems hard at times to keep motivated if you're not making enough money after you're putting in that much work. Unfortunately, you know, we had a couple of instances across those 14 months that we just knew that there was some wind in our sales, not maybe a lot of wind, but some wind. Those kind of reinvigorated us to keep going. And as an entrepreneur, you do assume a certain amount of risk and everybody's appetite for risk is a bit different. But for us, we knew that we had our own startup capital into this. We saw that each month we were making headway or making ground on our loss each month to get to the break-even point. Something that surprised me, frankly, was my health. It was around kind of month 12 or 13. I can't quite recall. It was my both of our children got sick. And one in particular got so sick that we had to put them in the children's hospital in Atlanta. And we weren't quite sure what was going on. And that was my son. And then our daughter, at the same time, because we were down there, she got so sick with such a high fever that they admitted her with the flu. <laughs> and I'm like, we have this very expensive health insurance at the time because we were entrepreneurs and you know, the premiums were through the roof and the deductibles were ridiculous. I just remember thinking like, man, this is going to be painful. And I just kind of got overwhelmed at that point, you know, with all the business stuff, all the business requirements trying to run this company. Now our kids are sick. Anyway, fortunately, they recovered and fortunately rather quick. But the next day when I got home that night, the next morning, I got up early in the morning to start working. And I was down at my desk in our basement where we have our office. And I thought I was having a heart attack because I was, I was under so much stress. Like I had so much to do that day and I felt like the overwhelming sense of my kids were okay, but we had mounting bills. And I told my wife, I think I'm having a heart attack. And she looked at me like, are you serious? But anyway, she took me to the hospital right away and they monitored me for 24 hours. And the bottom line was I was just under an insane amount of stress. And I did not know how to mitigate that. I didn't know what to do with that. So, you know, there's a lot of glamour around starting a company, but people who are in the midst of early struggle of a startup, I mean, I can identify because I was one of those people. And how did you start finding those assistants there at first? When you came in with your business plan, you said you took a year to kind of think about it. Yeah. What was your setup to find these assistants and hook them up with other people? You know, fortunately for us, I had worked in a particular vertical where I knew a lot of people. So we gained a lot of traction pretty quick. I think our first month in business, we signed four contracts and that was in December of 2010. So I had a little bit of momentum with that. But then about seven months into our business, a guy by the name of Michael Hyatt, he's a kind of an Uber blogger, author guy. I was introduced to him and he basically got a virtual assistant with our business. And then the next morning when he signed his contract, he tweeted about us. And that tweet basically filled up my inbox with sales leads. And that really kind of put us on the path of working in all sorts of different verticals today. And we jokingly call him our Oprah. But he put us on the map in kind of a nice big way and a nice shot in the arm. And I'm very grateful for him. Still, he's a client today. But a lot of how we've grown our business is still client referral and word of mouth. We leverage ourselves quite well on social media. You won't find us at a lot of events because we believe we're a virtual company and people need to find us via virtual method. We work really hard to kind of practice what we preach in terms of developing remote execution or virtual execution. This interview is going to be our Oprah moment for the podcast. Thank you. For I that. certainly <laughs> hope so. Yeah. Well, let's talk about working with your wife because had you done that before and then you both were working at home, you said, in the basement? We never had worked together before. And when we started our business, she was 33 and I was 35. She had a great career for 10 years plus, and I did too. We decided we're going to do this, that we'd work together in our basement. We had just finished out our basement, so we had a nice little office. 
we've since moved to a new home, but that was a really special place for us. I mean, the amount of effort and energy and phone calls and Zoom calls and emails and contracts, you name it, that kind of flew out of that little office. That was a really fun time. And then, you know, as our business continued to grow, we decided that we didn't need an office for our corporate team and still believe that to be, you know, the case today, our, our corporate team today with myself and my wife included in the corporate team, we're about 60 employees, 60 full-time people. We're all kind of the non-client facing people in our business at Belay. And we have about 550 contractors that work around the United States for us. And they're the virtual assistants, the bookkeepers, the writers, and the webmasters. Do you find yourself getting like store crazy? Get to stand at home and in the basement, even though it's cool that you like were able to do that. But especially if you're both working together and you're both at home, it seems like that might be a struggle. The answer for me is no. I'm an introvert. Doesn't bother me at all. And I was in sales for a long time. So for me, working remote, you know, and off the grid from away from the corporate office was just what you did. So for me, I love it. I get so much done because I'm I'm able to remain productive. Uh, my wife is a bit more of the extrovert, so she, I do see that she needs to kind of be out a bit more. And our corporate team, our 60 folks here, they're really, they're all in Metro Atlanta on purpose. So we don't have an office, but we have a mandate that you, if you want to be on our corporate team, you have to be here in Metro Atlanta. So, you know, our teams do meet. They'll use a co-work location space for a day, maybe for the collaborate on sales or marketing or relationship management, whatever their department is. You know, she's able to get up a bit more. We're very intentional about our meetings. We get our whole corporate team together once a quarter to vision cast and talk about you know where we're headed and celebrate what's going on with our mission and how we're accomplishing that. So we're really intentional about our times together. But for the most part, we use Zoom. And that's almost like the same thing of walking into someone's cubicle because it's just it's Zoom. You can see them and talk to them. I want to still talk about the steps along the way to growing the business today, but I don't want to make sure we didn't get too far down the line. All of this experience that you've gotten together that made you decide to go ahead and write a book as well? Yeah. So I just uh, launched a book of ours. It's called Virtual Culture. The way we work doesn't work anymore. And it's really kind of our playbook for how we took a company to a certain size without ever having an office. And I'm really excited because my wife actually launches her book in April. It's called The Third Option, and it's, it's talking about how women don't have to sacrifice family and career anymore. And the reason why we know that is because we employ a ton of them that work in an organization, and they can have meaningful work and actually be a significant contributor to their family. So, you know, her book is really kind of geared towards those folks, and mine's really more geared to all the people that would call me and say, hey, how, how are you winning awards and growing your company without an office? So virtual culture is basically our playbook where I share how we did that. Especially because y'all were a little bit earlier on in that. I think more and more people are hearing about it, but still, I don't think necessarily that mainstream, maybe only because like I use virtual assistants and you do as well, but still a vast majority. It just boggles their mind how that could even like occur. Right? Yeah. You know, and sometimes it's the owner's personality where they just like to be in an office and they like to see people. That's kind of their MO and they get energy from that. But in our organization, that's just not necessary. We execute every day on behalf of clients in all different sorts of capacities without really needing an office to do that. And we've got plenty of great web-based tools to help us collaborate and stay on top of things. I think the big one is, and I even I touch on this in my book as well, in virtual culture, that there's this assumption that you're not a legitimate business if you don't have an office. <laughs> That's just not true. You know, like an office in and of itself is just a thing. Office is not culture. It's a shared vision for what you need to do. That's That becomes a culture. I've just had to kind of over time, combat against that. You know, I remember in the early days when I was selling, I had a guy I really liked, we got along well, and he was about to ask me for a contract. And he said, well, why don't you come in the office down here in Atlanta and bring in the contract? And I'll just sign it. And I paused because I really wanted the deal. And I just said, sir, with all due respect, if I have to come see you 
to get this deal signed. I've defeated the purpose of my business. And he just started cracking up. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Go ahead and send it to me. And he's like, <laughs> there's just so many things that we already do virtually that people don't realize. It's just for some reason, when it comes to work, everybody wants to put up a silly barrier. My standard joke is if grandma and five states away can FaceTime with their grandkids, we're far more virtual than we realize. And that's true. And I don't know why it stops at the kind of the boundaries of the workplace, but that's also changing and evolving too. And companies like ours and other companies that are really kind of moving in an all virtual capacity. It's exciting to see that, not just because of the fact that it's a remote or virtual thing. It's because when an owner of a business basically says, look, even one day a week, you can work from home. What you're signaling to your employees is, look, I trust you. I trust you to do the job. I trust you to execute. I trust you to produce. And the trust that that's built in the worker is insanely good. It develops loyalty, engagement, produces results in a greater capacity from my experience and from the stories that have been told to me. I don't think that this is kind of a fad. I actually think that this is what work is going to look like in the United States within the next 10 to 20 years. I know, for sure. Out of all the interviews, I think this is the most important for someone who's just like maybe thinking about getting started in entrepreneurship because it all starts with like a little thing like this. And this is what my old company, when, before I started my personal like commercial real estate company, they weren't going to pay for assistance. So I started off by just getting a virtual assistant really cheap overseas and just doing those manual task things that you have to do the repetitive ones over and over and over. And it's like having that mind shift, like, okay, I can outsource this one thing that I have to put in an Excel spreadsheet two hours every week and just starting with one thing at a time. And I think that's kind of how you finally make the shift to doing your own business. But yeah, I want to keep hitting back into the book, but go along with your story along the way. How about the first two years? Did you make any mistakes growing the thing? <laughs> oh, I paid plenty of stupid tax. <laughs> hey, let's hear about the it. Stupid tax is offensive at times when I think about it. I mentioned to you earlier that we used our 401ks to fund our, our startup capital for our business. And it was the right decision then. It would never be the right decision today, mostly because there are third-party organizations out there that basically help you do this and they help you stay in compliance with like the Department of Labor and the IRS. But it really kind of comes at a cost in its future. So when people ask me today, would you do it? I'm absolutely not because the cost of all the legal bills that you have to pay in order to kind of ex appropriately escape the jaws of a third party that ministers a rollover for a startup business. It's a costly experience. I encourage people, if they can, take the licks, pay the tax, and then if they have to use that 401k money, do it that way because it was costly for us to do it, appropriately escape it. There's other people that escape it and they and hope for the best that the Department of Labor or the IRS doesn't look into it. But to appropriately escape it, it comes at a pretty big cost. You're saying, because so, I don't think maybe some people don't know, normally yeah. what is the tax hit if you just take it out of your 401k? And then what were you trying to lower it to? Well, the, the penalties, they differ, but I mean, you can get dinged quite a bit. We're talking like in the 30 to 40%. Let's say it's $100,000 in your 401k. You're you're easily going to give them 30 to 40,000 to the feds. Your startup capital is obviously less. But if you want to do, which is referred to as a rollover for a startup business, which is take your 401k and convert it into actually shares into your new business, then there's a legitimate way to do that that the government does approve currently. And you have to use a third-party administrator to do that. Then you can basically save that capital, that tax in essence that you would pay, and you can keep that to grow your business. At the time, we're like, yeah, that makes good sense. We need that money. But on the other side of it, once you become successful, and you want to kind of change your corporate structure or anything like that, it's a nightmare. It takes a really smart employment attorney to appropriately work through all the documentation that's needed to escape something like that and a really good CPA. 
So you thought you'd get by maybe only paying like 5k based in fees or something. And then over time, it just ends up being even more than taxes. Well, the, the fees up front weren't that substantial. It was really on the backside, not even to the third party administrator. It was just really to legitimately escape that structure that we had in place when we started. Because we had to start, most businesses will start with an LLC. We had to start with a C corporation because they mandate it. If you're going to do this, you have to create shares in your business. Because of all the Enron stuff, you have to have the business evaluated by a third party. And there's just a lot of kind of heavy regulation on how you do it. But then your tax, as a small business, if you start off as a C corporation, there's some definitely some, some tax implications there as well. So I guess my encouragement would be is it sounds like a good thing. I would encourage you to talk to your CPA. That's really the right thing for you and for your business as you're starting. My encouragement to you would be don't do it. Take the licks. That way you don't have to worry about the back end suffering our stupid tax. <laughs> but at least you're smart enough to save. I think most people, unfortunately, don't even have that. That makes sense because, yeah, I've never heard of being able to get out of the taxes up front. But then, like you're saying, in the long run, it ends up costing you way more, it sounds yeah. like, or yeah. than just that 30 or 40%. <laughs> it does because where it costs you more is, is simply this, is when you first start, your business is valued at practically nothing. But if you become successful and a couple, three years in, you're, you're making maybe a million, $2 million in revenue. Well, your business is valued in a much higher value. So the value basically of your initial investment has increased significantly as well, which means you've got to pay tax on that. There's just a lot that kind of goes into that gain in your business to appropriately escape something like that. And it's funny too, because, you know, I remember researching this back in August of 2010. And Entrepreneur Magazine did a huge article on it about, hey, this is a legitimate way to do that. For me, I just thought, this is perfect. I can't even believe that we're allowed to do this legally. And it is. It's still legal. It's just, I guess there's an assumption with the most of these that their businesses aren't going to grow as wildly successful you know, or they're going to fail. And then it's really a moot point at that point. So you're unsubscribed from Entrepreneur Magazine now? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> Surprisingly, uh, last year we won Top Company Culture Award with Entrepreneur Magazine yeah. for our company. And ironically, we were number one on the list last year, 2017, but we did it without an office. Did you tell them that it was their fault with the payment? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <kidding. laughs> the truth is, it's my fault. I made it. Yeah, you got to take ownership. I'm just joking yeah. around. And I guess that's part of the reason that led you to write the book is that Entrepreneurship Magazine came to you, but were other people coming to you over time and the reason you wanted to write the book? Well, a lot of the reason why I wrote the book was as we kind of got more known, we hit the uh, Inc. 5000 list three times in a row and this award and we've, we won a few other awards. And when people started to look under the covers, they realized we didn't have an office and that was intriguing. So I'd have large corporations and small startups call and say, okay, how did you do this? Because I never want an office or we're going to abandon our office. And I just kind of just coaching people and giving them my thoughts over time and blogging on it. And I just got to this place where I had a body of work where I could create really our playbook and just share that with the world. That's really the reason for virtual culture is my way of saying, hey, this is how we did it. Mm -hmm. You talked about some stupid tax in the first couple of years. Was there any more along the way? Yeah. You get to a certain size and you start to think like, well, maybe there's better talent that can help us kind of grow to the next level. And on a couple of different occasions, we had tried to hire from the outside, you know, rock stars with amazing resumes. And it was just like a bad surgery or a bad skin graft where it just didn't take like the way it should. And in both instances, when they were brought in in kind of higher capacity roles, our revenue would suffer. You could see it. You Historically, you could just look back over the six months or so that we kind of let them be there and try and lead that our revenue would suffer. Interestingly, when we decided to create the focus of promoting from within and really make that publicly known with inside our company, 
what we found that leaders rose up in our business and we created a kind of a leadership pipeline for that. But stupid tax for me was just making this assumption that the best talent lied outside of our business when the truth was amazing talent was already within our business that had already swallowed the hook on what we were doing and could rise to the occasion. And years two to year three, I mean, was it still just you and your wife? No, we had at that point from year two to year three, we had grown to probably about eight to 10 corporate team people. And, you know, our margins were thin because we're really reinvesting that net back into our business. We had grown to about eight to 10 people at that point. And how many virtual assistants had you assigned up? That's a great question. I would say we were probably around 40 to 50 virtual assistants at that time and maybe 10 bookkeepers. I guess there had to be certain hurdles that helped you also write virtual culture because it seems like obviously it'd be hard to do that. But along the way, were you finding different issues with the virtual assistants you were signing out or was it more within your own company that you were trying to make sure the culture ended up being great? Some of the greater challenges aren't with our contractors, our virtual assistants, you know, our bookkeepers, writers and webmasters. We make it really clear what's expected of them. And we've got a really great mechanism in place to kind of work with them and help them with people and with services. And so there's a good expectation that's there for them serving our client. A lot of our issues, frankly, came with our corporate team and scaling the non-client facing sides of the business. You know, how many relationship managers do we need? Those are relationship managers are basically responsible for the clients and the contractors and the relationship as those have continued to grow our business. That's a big thing to scale and figure out because it takes people and that's not cheap. What technology we're going to use as we evolve, because the things you use in a million dollars of revenue are probably not the things you're doing at 15 million. And that's true of systems and processes as well and benefits and you name it. So You have to kind of be willing to change and to adjust yourself as you go. I tell my leadership team this all the time, is that the things that got us here will not be the things that get us there. And I know that's a bit cliche, but it's true. You know, we went through a season where we read a book called Scaling Up. And in the book, it talks about businesses go through seasons called the Valley of Death, where some don't make it out of the Valley of Death and others, they figure it out and they kind of scale up from there. And those happen around a million dollars in sales and then another at uh, 10 million in sales and then another at 50 million in sales. And really what it is, it's revisiting all the things that got you to that point and, and be willing to say, I'm not going to do it that way anymore. And we've just been really brave to not We just say, look, we can kill this. We don't have to do this anymore. This is silly. This is redundant or whatever. And we've got a great leadership team that really kind of believes in that philosophy as well. Yeah, because it seems like when you'd outsource the virtual assistants to, let's say, it's one C-level employee, that's easy for them to maintain because it's like a one-to-one relationship where they can easily communicate. The issue comes in when you have this many virtual assistants for your own personal company and you're trying to keep that culture and that communication. So Tell us like what tools you used maybe in the beginning and then to where you've kind of grown or how you've grown that culture. Because personally, that's kind of where I'm at as well in my business and with the podcast. That I have not just one assistant where before I had it one or two that were main drivers, but now I have a team of like four or five. So it becomes definitely a different type of way to communicate. Yeah. What I found was when I... And my wife too, as we've kind of grew up the business, what we realized as us as leaders and now our leadership team that... The how and the when and the what is very important, but the why is always better because we make the assumption that we're working with adults. We're making the assumption that we trust these adults and we trust them with the why. And so the more we can communicate the why and kind of the why behind things, they can really execute all the other things because the why informs everything else. It trumps it too. And so our meetings sometimes, or not sometimes, quite often we'll start with, hey, this is why we're here, or this is why we're changing this process, or this is why we're doing this thing. And then we trust our team to kind of fill in the blanks. And the cool thing is that if you're just kind of scaling up, 
it's really, it's delegating the why, not the what. And it, it took us a while to kind of figure that out. And, you know, there's probably some listeners right now that are like, oh, I get it. And there's other ones probably scratching their head like that makes no sense to me. But the truth is when you start to realize that you have adults working for you and you're asking them to do certain things, when you show them the end result, which is the why and why it's important to them, and you give them permission to kind of backfill that in, they'll likely do it quicker and better than you could do it. We have a highly productive organization today at Belay simply because we spend a lot of time talking about why this is important versus how to do it. Could you expand in detail something, I guess, recently that you've had to explain the why? Sure. Back in 2016, we went through a pretty big corporate initiative. So we got everybody together on a special day, our corporate team of about 60 folks. And we said, look, this is the decision we've made as owners of the business. This is what we're doing. But more importantly, this is why we're doing it. It's a huge undertaking and we need everybody to play their part. But this is why. And numerous times over the course of the five to seven months it took to execute on the initiative, everybody kept on coming back to, this is why this is important. It's not a matter how or how hard it is or the what or the when. They all knew this is why this is important to the success of Belay. And the reason why I know that this wasn't just some silly kind of high-level leadership principle is because I had employees coming up to me and say, we know why this is so important. We know our part in this. And, you know, I think that that's part of helping an organization scale, big or small. When people are foggy about the mission or the why behind an organization, they're left to kind of fill in the blank on their own. And they kind of are aimless as an employee. When people say to me, how do I really scale my company? I start with this topic right here. You make sure it's really clear why they're there and what they're doing. You talk about the why more than the what. And ultimately, they have questions about the what, the when, and the how. You can obviously answer those, but the why always trumps it. Can you have multiple whys or do you just try to pick one? I mean, yeah, you can have your mission and maybe a strategy statement or something like that. That's a good thing to have, but you can have day-to-day whys. You can have quarterly whys. You can make initiatives or build partnerships and they can all be connected to a deep why for the business. Absolutely. Maybe you could use me as a case study. Could I give you a scenario of something actually just had before this call? Sure, let's try it. With my assistance, yes. I'm trying to implement like at least once a week, there's five of us. Make sure we get on a meeting call for an hour. I understand they don't want to do meetings because they're virtual assistants. I don't like meetings either. That's the reason I kind of had started my own company is I don't want to do all these quote unquote seem pointless meetings. But I guess maybe I need to emphasize why we're doing it a little bit more versus just kind of talking like basically what I try to do with them when we have the meeting is we go over each interview. If there's any issues, someone can talk about something so we can just keep improving each episode, the podcast editing. So it's mainly with the editors and the show notes people. And I guess today it seemed like they were just not interested. Like I'm trying to give them update numbers on where we're at and where we need to go in order to get advertisers like downloads per episode, et cetera. Sure. But maybe I need to emphasize more why we're doing it. I mean, I've told them before, that's why I started the podcast was because I wanted to help out other entrepreneurs who are listening and, you know, they can learn from your story, but actually learn actual tactics on kind of how to start a company. To me, it seemed like more fun for me to try to express that through a podcast and actually help people versus what I was doing before. It just it was a lot less people that I was reaching and I didn't feel like I was maybe necessarily helping as many people out. Maybe I need to emphasize why we're having those meetings or I don't know what your suggestions would be because I have a couple of whys in my head of why we're doing the meeting, but do you have any suggestions or should I keep talking about it? Yeah, no. My first question to you would be, have you ever communicated that from your heart to your team? 
Yeah, maybe I need to reemphasize that on why. Because actually, at first, they really enjoyed it because I told them I want them to be proud of their work. So I want them to be able to share. Like when I emphasize the quality of the interview, I'm like, when they go to edit it, I want them to not just spend an hour or two. I want, I want them to spend a lot longer trying to make it as perfect as they can because I want them to be excited about their work versus maybe another employer that they're working with at the time is you know, they just kind of do the job and get it done and kind of go the next thing. I'm like, I want you to be proud and be able to share it. Yeah. I've emphasized that before, but maybe it's been a little while and that's why. Well, I I don't think you can ever talk about the why enough. Right. I think the minute your employees start lovingly mocking you because here comes the why story again, they got it. And up until that point, they don't get it. And here's, and, and it's not that they don't get it. They want it. I find that employees want a meaningful why and they'll work really hard once that's quite clear. And how you do that, how you grasp someone's heart, how you connect someone's heart to the mission of an organization as you share stories about how you're winning and how that why is impacting other people. The more you can help them see that their work on a day-to-day basis is connected in a meaningful way to what you're trying to accomplish, the better the result. So we talk about stories in our business about it's not that we're just providing a virtual assistant and giving her a job or giving a guy that's a bookkeeper in North Carolina a job. No, 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 no. It's a step further. It's those clients and they're out of breath and they need help and they can't get to that kid's soccer game or they can't produce that result or they're about to burn out. And we intervene and we step in and we help those people. And why that's important is because their family gets help. They get to grow their business. Maybe other people's jobs are connected to that leader. There's so much of what you do on a day-to-day basis that significantly helps grow them and it helps grow organization. When you can help them tie themselves back to the what, the how, the when, back to the bigger why, it's powerful. And as a leader and anybody listening, if you haven't taken the time recently to kind of share with the people that work for you the heart of why you started the business or why you fell in love with the business, then that's on you as a leader. You need to share that story and make sure that there's a meaningful connection for your employees to go, oh, that's right. That's why I'm here. I agree. I, I'm glad I voiced this because thinking back, I, I know I've heard this advice too. As a leader, you're going to feel like you're saying that over and over and over if you're trying to emphasize the why. But really, again, if you don't, they're going to forget. Maybe again, it's probably been maybe a month or two since I've even said that. Right. So maybe in my head, I'm thinking, oh, I've said it before, but you have to say it so many times, like you were saying, till they're basically mocking you jokingly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because then you know they get it. Yeah, that's right. What else have you learned about the virtual culture as you grown your company? Hopefully, if someone's employing some virtual assistants and they're kind of taking the team, like I said, to my level or even bigger, what worked and what hasn't? Well, a couple of really practical things. When you're building a virtual team, you need to be really comfortable working with a webcam because there's something very meaningful and authentic that happens when you start working with people and you can actually see them on a webcam. What you don't realize is you're invited into their house. And it's actually more authentic than if it's invited into their cubicle in an office. And so what happens is over time, instead of just saying, hey, can I have a quick call with you? And you do it on a phone call. You just have a conversation across a webcam and you just talk and you get the job done. You do the thing, whatever. But you saw each other. And so we, we Zoom all the time in our business. Like if someone wants to talk to me, they send me a Zoom link. Or if it's, hey, I have a quick question about this. I get a Zoom link and an instant message. So webcam is very, very important. We use Zoom today. We have an enterprise license for them. But when we first started, we could afford Skype. We've tried them all, but we, we landed with Zoom. But having a web camera and actually seeing each other, even though it's virtual, is very, very important. And then here's the thing. You give grace to the people on the other side. They might be sick. They may not be dressed in Sunday's best, but that's okay because that's real life. And I've just found that over time, you can really build meaningful connection with people 
via webcam. And, and then when they get together face to face and, you know, in real person, it's really meaningful because they've got a deep rapport with these folks. Another really practical thing I would tell is if you're doing team calls, like on a Zoom call or a, a web-based call, is do not let anybody go on mute or hide their camera. Because the truth is, is as I'm talking, and if you're listening to this, you might be doing 55 other things, but I can't see you and I can't hear you. The minute you demand that everybody stays off mute and shows their, their video camera, you have their undivided attention and they're more meaningful. It's a more productive meeting. So we've just decided that in our business, unless there's some you know crazy dog barking for a second or a barista grinding beans, go on mute for one second, but you, the expectation is, is you're never on mute. You're always present in our calls. We're only doing audio, but I do have your full attention, but I agree with you. Well, that's what I started implementing on my calls, like right when I got back, because I actually went over there to the Philippines to meet all of them. Yeah. And when I got back, I said, now that we've all met in person, because it had been a couple months beforehand when I just hired the audio editors, I said, hey, we're going to do video calls for now. And so I can tell, and it really has helped because then you know if they're doing something else or not. And again, just seeing them for a minute, to me, it's helped because a lot of those virtual assistants that were working with me before that they have other jobs where they don't get to meet the clients or they, they don't get to meet the other virtual assistants who work together. That was part of the reason I wanted to do video calls with everybody. So it feels like more of a team. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you can have a great, meaningful team and do it kind of in a remote capacity as long as you can see each other and hear each other. And I'm telling you, the mute button is the devil. <laughs> yeah. What other tips have you learned? Because these are really good, especially like I said, more companies are going to lean towards this. Maybe any practical tips or anything else from the book that we can learn from? Yeah, you know, a couple of things. We've realized that in a virtual environment, it can become a problem, it, potentially, because it, there's really the accountability piece is not there because you can't see in everybody's office where they work, is it can create a place where people could gossip. And for us, we have a no gossip policy in our business. If you gossip, you fired. And we just make it really clear. We may love you. You may produce great results in our business. But if you are gossiping and we find out about it, you're gone. We make it clear in the employee handbook. We talk about it. We train on it. We just don't believe that gossip has a place in our business. And we define gossip simply. Gossip for us is taking your problem that somebody can do nothing about it. So the right way to handle the problem that you have is to take that up in an organization to your manager. If for whatever reason you feel like you can't take it to, up to your manager, you can take it to HR. You can take it to anybody that's up above you kind of on the org chart, if you will. And then they'll help you address the problem. The worst thing you can do with your problem is take it to a peer or worse, somebody that reports to you. Because you're taking the problem, somebody can do nothing about it, and you're poisoning their waters unnecessarily. In a virtual company, that can happen real easy if you're not careful. We've just made it really clear. And I've, over the course of eight years of being in business, we've had to fire three people because of that. Yeah. Can you tell us how that would happen? Because, yeah, I would think it almost would be harder. And I 100% agree with what you're saying. I don't even really like us being like with friendship or anything because I, I just don't have time for that shit. Yeah. I just, yeah. I mean, it's just negativity is not going to bring anything positive. I definitely want to make sure that I emphasize that if that's an issue. Because to me, it almost seemed like it happened more when I was actually at the office job because it's a little bit easier, I guess, to on free time. But how could we keep that from happening on a virtual assistant level? And when could that happen possibly? Well, you know, I mean, it, it could just be that an employee is upset and they just call one of their coworkers and say, did you know about this? Or And that's just, that's gossip. And we just yeah. put up with it. Frankly, I think it's really easy in a virtual company to do that. We realized that early on in our business in about 2012. And we just said, look, this is something we will not stand for. This has no place in our business. If unfortunately you do this, you will be fired. There's no warning. This is it. And we made it clear in our handbook. They sign off on it. They train on it. We talk about it periodically. They just know that gossip equals fired in our business. And, you know, you can have this. 
is a great policy if you have an office too. Yeah, I think you should do it in either one. That makes sense. I guess you're just at a scale level where it's easier if they know each other. And maybe it's more of a, it depends on the culture as well. Just like if they're in the US versus not and how many people you have hired. Because if you only have a couple at first, then... Yeah, you can kind of tell. Yeah. You know, and typically it happens. You start to see someone go sideways in their work product or they're grumbling. They're not handling it well. They're not communicating the issues well. I mean, you, you can kind of start to see it happening. Unfortunately, most times they end up digging their own grave when it comes to that. But we do practice what we preach. If we've had three people over eight years gossip and good people, but they're not working here anymore. And it's important to stand firm on if you say that, because then if you don't, then it just just exacerbates, right? Yeah. So I, I think that that's a really practical one that's served our business quite well. Another one is we've developed what we call conflict norms in our business. We realize that whether you're in an office or not, at times you're going to have conflict. There are going to be things that you've got to kind of navigate and sort through. And so what we've done is we've given our team permission to basically have appropriate conflict in our company. And we, we train on it. We teach on it. But a practical example, we have a rule called the TSA rule, which is you see something, you say something. And think about this. And you'll see you see something in the business. You're like, oh, that's not right. Well, the worst thing you can do, right, is take it to your peer or someone below you. The right thing to do is to take it up. So you have an obligation in our business. If you see something that's wrong or it's off, you have to say something. That seems to work. People are free to come and say, I saw this. The truth is, is I can't see in an actual office because I'd have to look in 66 different homes in Atlanta, <laughs> you know, like to figure stuff out. That'd be so, creepy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and creepy. Yeah. You know, you, you just have to say, look, you know, if you see something, raise your hand, say it in an appropriate way. So we, we give people the permission to do that. Next one is we hunt the elephant. If there's just something in a meeting we just know is like the big elephant in the room and no one's saying it, we just get permission to say, this is the elephant. This is the thing you were acting this way, or this is the thing we're, we're afraid to talk about. And we just say, you can hunt the elephant. And the other biggie that we use, the third one, a conflict normally say is welcome the contrarian. And what we mean by that is, let's say we're in a meeting and everybody's just like, yep, this is the right thing to do. Everybody's nodding up and down. We should do this. But there's no one on the other side saying, yeah, but what about this or the opposite view? Even if everybody's in agreement, we'll ask somebody to play the role of the contrarian so that we can have the best decision coming out of that experience. So we, we say we welcome the contrarian. In a practical sense, there's going to be people that might be maybe greater in terms of leadership in the business or history with the business or whatever. And you have maybe a new person that's like, yeah, but I, what about this? In our business, they have a place here because we welcome the contrarian. And it's, it's just, it's become a norm for us so that it's not something someone gets upset and pissed about. It's more of like, oh no, we, we want the best idea coming out of this collaboration. So we welcome this. Can we go back to your first point right there that you were talking about? The TSA rule? Yeah. What happens if they don't say something? I mean, because I, I 100%, what I've told my assistants is like, I don't get pissed off if they make a mistake. I don't care at all. But it's just after we fix it the first time, I just don't want it happening again. Like you're going to learn from it, whether it's the audio editing, show notes, whatever, you know, marketing of the podcast. But then to make sure that they bring up if there's an issue too, what happens if they don't, if they're not bringing up those issues? How do you like help them do that? Well, I think you just got to have a really candid conversation with them saying, you know, are you afraid to bring this to me or whatever that might be that that might be the case. I think that if they know that they're free to bring things up to you, then they've got to know that it's a safe harbor when they do that, that there's not a repercussion coming from it. And for me too, we worked really hard in our business. I rarely let people just come to me with problems. Yeah. Come with solution. 
come with some solutions or something. Now, if, I mean, if it's like life or death, something's about to explode, I'll resolve it. But for the most part, nothing in our business is like that. It's like, okay, well, that's a good problem. What are some ideas to resolve it? And as you coach them and teach them the ideas to resolve it over time with their ideas of how they resolved it, the problems become less and less. Yeah, I think it might just maybe a nationality thing where if I'm hiring Filipinos that some of them are a lot more timid, if you will, sure. versus trying to say, I don't think they're scared to bring it up. Because I, I told them, I actually congratulate them and get happy when they can find something wrong. right? Because <laughs> then I'm like, okay, well, good. Because now, again, I don't care that some mistake's been made. Let's find out where it's been made. And then let's not do it anymore. Then we're just going to keep getting a little bit better, hopefully, each time. And I think that's a really great and easy place to insert the why. Hey, this is why this is important. This is why I need you to bring up the things and where you see gaps, because this equals a greater thing that we're trying to accomplish. And, a, you know, a listener wins or however you want to articulate your why. But the more that they feel safe and the more they know that they can do that connected to the why, the better. Well, no, well, thanks. All these tips. And it's been great as far as, again, just I think anyone starting off and wanting to start their business is one step at a time. And I think it's kind of hopefully getting that first virtual assistant, even at your job right now, if you're getting a salary, faster boss to get you one. I mean, take it on to yourself. It's worth your time and energy to try to train someone because that's kind of the first step. And when you're doing a business is eventually you're going to have to train someone. So why not just try it now in the position you're at yeah. where they can actually help you? Absolutely. And I would tell you from a virtual assistant standpoint is don't just see them as a virtual assistant, see them as a work along partner or work alongside partner, see them in extension as who you are and grease the tracks for them in that way. Because my assistant is way more than my assistant. I am four or five times more productive as a leader because of Paige. But when Paige calls to do something inside our company, they treat it as if it's Brian calling. And I've done that on purpose. I don't see her as just my assistant. I see her as a person that's my work alongside partner. And man, the best clients we have at have virtual assistants with us, the best ones, they get it. They get that exact point. And they literally can't live without them at that point. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Like me, I'm right hand man, but equally. I mean, between the two of us, it seems like I have six people. There you go. Yeah. Because then you just get so in sync and we're so spot on on doing things. It almost seems like that. But then, like you said, it's kind of growing that culture from just kind of having a one main assistant to having a couple to growing it, hopefully the size of yours at one point. So, yeah, yeah no, we appreciate you having all these tips and sure. kind of in closing, like where are you at today and what do you see for the future for your company? I'm excited for the future success of Belay. I think that one of the things that always kind of I scratch my head about is we're just not known. We've got tons of customers we're growing, but we haven't really done traditional advertising. And so that'll probably be an area that we're going to look at in our future is how we can kind of become more mainstream in the United States with our business. We're considering some international moves with our business. There are certain markets that we think that are the way and our model makes sense. So I, you know, we're looking at that stuff right now as an organization. And then frankly, just continuing to look at how we scale our business and that'll probably be with the introduction of new technology that we'll probably create because we can afford to do that today. Same struggles that other businesses have at 10, $15 million in sales. We're the same place. You know, we're, we're looking how we scale up to maybe make it a 50 to $100 million company uh, or more. I think you're in a good space too, because it should be a market that just keeps growing, right? Versus you're not like selling paper, I guess, per se. So yeah, you know, it's interesting right now. Unemployment is like at four point nothing. When we first started our company, it was at 9.6. We actually, we believe that as the market kind of slows a little bit and jobs become a bit more scarce, we find that we're in much more need at that point. So we're thriving quite well in a market where people don't technically need us and they can put an ad to their payroll. So we're excited, frankly, for you know an uptick a little bit in the true employment rate, just simply because adding people to their own payroll, they start to really start scratching their head and say, you know, outsourcing is really a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, understood. Then you're getting rid of that hard fixed cost too. It's That's just, right. 
yeah. there's so many reasons to go with it. What happens if someone wanted who was listening and wanted to hire an assistant through you? Could you tell them a little bit more about how they could get one? I don't know if you have generic yeah. rates that they could get. Yeah, no, we start with the conversation. Every one of our clients that become our clients starts the conversation with one of our solution consultants, our salespeople. They have a, about a 30-minute phone call with them. We understand their needs. We let them ask us questions. We talk about price. We ask them a lot of questions too. The truth is we're qualifying them just as much as they're qualifying us. We get to pick our clients and we really want the best clients to serve. We've got amazing people ready to serve our clients, but we want to make sure that's a good fit for them too. So there's a good back and forth in that 30 minute phone call where we're just making sure we understand the needs of the client. And then we share pricing at that point based on what their actual need is. It's a little bit custom. We don't publish our rates on our site on purpose simply because we just, we want to make sure that we're making sure that we're meeting their needs before we give them a, a custom price. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I don't know if you had at one point, maybe you would have had it. And if that was an issue, because I've always found that interesting when, because if you just wanted a bookkeeper versus wanting a full-time assistant that does a lot of different things, obviously the rates are, could, seems like they could be a lot different. Yeah. I guess the assumption, and we've never published our prices on our website ever. And mostly it's because we don't assume that we understand the customer before we talk to them you know, a person may need payroll and they may want to be paid once a month. And then they have light bookkeeping and limited transactions. Whereas another customer may have a ton of transactions and wants to be paid every month or every week. But it's like, there's just too much variability. And one client might need help managing their email and serving as air traffic control to their inbox. And then another client might need help managing their calendar or project management. There's just so much variability that we decided long ago that we wouldn't let price be the first reason why someone would consider us. We decided that price would be important, but it wouldn't be the first thing that drives why people talk to us. And those were some perfect use cases on what someone could use a virtual assistant. Do you have a couple more? And then if you want to say the website to make sure that everyone has a chance to sure. have a conversation with you all, that'd be great. There's just so many things professionally and personally that a virtual assistant can do for a leader. My assistant helps me schedule my haircuts and manage vacation stuff. You know, I've got a second home. She helps me kind of oversee some of that stuff manage kids' dental appointments. And then she helps me in the business day-to-day, -day, you know, managing my email. She's my air traffic controller over my inbox. You know, I get about 150 emails a day and I probably only really reply to about 20 because, you know, most leaders in businesses, as they grow, you realize you're really just kind of the router. People come to you, but you're really not the one to solve it. And so you got to kind of point the communication to the people in the business. You know, bookkeepers, what we try and say is, you know, there's a huge difference between an accountant and a bookkeeper. An accountant interprets financials. A bookkeeper creates the financials. And they got to be weapons grade. If you're going to make good decisions, they got to be weapons grade bookkeeping. And that's what we do. We have great people that are highly qualified here in the U.S. that manage the books for many great organizations out there and those leaders. We basically jokingly call it, but it's true. It's weapons grade bookkeeping. And that makes sense what you just said there too, because even if you had a crappier CPA, and but you're bringing them everything with all the details there, it's much easier for that not great CPA to figure it out versus a great CPA having to go through a cruddy financial statements. So, That's right. It's hard to interpret anything when your books are a hot mess. Right. That definitely makes sense. But in, in terms of folks being able to find us, they can find us online. We're pretty active on social media, but our website is just simply belaysolutions.com. We call ourselves Belay, but it's just belaysolutions.com. And then we're out there on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. And if someone personally wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Is it social media or email? Yeah, social media. I'm really active at Brian Miles, B-R-Y-A-N-M-I-L-E-S on Twitter. And I'm very active on Instagram as well. Well, thank you for doing the interview, Brian. I mean, if there's one last thing that you want to leave our listeners with, what would that be? 
I would say that America, you know, and depending on where you're hearing this, if you're in a different country even, but I would just say that in your nation where you are, if you're considering starting a business or you're in the throes of it right now, is we need you. We need more small businesses because really it's the backbone of an economy. It's not just that we need you to produce jobs. We need you to produce meaningful jobs that people want to connect their heart to. People are going to spend a lot of their life and their actual waking hours working in your organization. So it should be a place of very good meaning so that when they go home each night, they feel like they're satisfied because they helped move the dial in your mission. It's one thing to provide a paycheck. It's another to produce a meaningful employee that cares about the organization and has meaning in their life. So I just say I'd encourage you keep going, keep fighting for what's right in your business and for your economy and your, in your country. And I'm personally cheering you on. Thank you for the tips that hopefully they can grow those businesses or start those small businesses. We uh, really appreciate your time again, Brian. Yes, yeah, it was fun. Great interview. Thank you for the opportunity. Yep. Okay. So yeah, how do you think it went? Great. I mean, uh, a lot of my guests, I let them talk as much as they want, but yeah, you gave me a lot of opportunity to talk. So I appreciate that. And I think personally, hopefully it should help me uh, a lot as well. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. There's little things like I think I'm enough behind you that I hopefully just learned from this book and from the mistakes that I'm doing it right. And I think the main thing is just not being naive about having to have some kind of culture with this because, yeah. again, more more businesses are going to do it and they're going to realize that, I think, over time after you start getting more and more assistance. We didn't talk about this just now, but i tell you a really great book to read because I, th I think you'd actually really like it. It's called Predictable Success. Have you heard of that book? No, no. Writing it down. It's really great because it, it, it kind of like in almost in layman's terms, I read this book and I'm like, yep, this is perfect. It basically explains the stages of a business. And, you know, the first stage they call early struggle. The next stage is fun. And then the third stage is whitewater. And then the fourth stage is predictable success. And then it kind of goes on. And like, if you, if you, then if you don't kind of go back in the whitewater, you end up killing your business. You end up on the death trap and the down spiral and all that stuff. But a lot of times, once people get through early struggle in their business, they get into a season where it's fun. And then they choose not to scale it because they, they just want something that's fun. They're making good money. They don't want to do the hard work to kind of continue to evaluate and grow their business. Right, yeah. So they just stay in fun. And, but that book has all these great symptoms and some really great markers in it for you. So I just, you know, I think you'd really like that book. It was really helpful for me in the early days of our business too. Yeah. I was kind of doing the fun thing and now it's like, you have to actually work kind of hard, grow it, make money. So definitely understandable. And yeah, no, I'll check it out and probably just take this, what we just said right there and put it in the back end of the interview just so people make sure that they uh, hopefully picked up predictable success as well. And obviously I've said your book a couple of times here, virtual culture, but it again was your wife's book. So if someone wanted to grab that, it's called the third option and her name is Shannon miles. All right. And yeah, we'll put those in the show notes too. I have a landing page for my book. It's called virtual culture book. Okay. Dot com, if you can tie to that. And then Shannon's, I, I wonder if it's up yet. I know they were working out the other day, but I think it's the third. Yep. My third option dot com cool. third and spelled. third is spelled okay, cool. cool all right well appreciate you uh, doing the uh, call here again you bet it was a pleasure to meet you yeah you as well thank you all right take care see you Brian Bye.